see you guys. Great to see you guys. Great to see you. Oh, you're going to record this? <laughs> we're going to record it and we're going to put we're it on the We're not just going to talk about Star Trek? <laughs> That'd be fine as well. Yeah, yeah. You should definitely forget we're recording. This should just be a conversation between four Star Trek V fans. Well, then let's, in that case, let's, I, let's, I... John, let's get into it because we haven't talked. And I love that that nobody knows why this is happening, sort of. So <laughs> I want to get into it without without too much preamble and have it just all the conversation we're going to have. Let's just have it. Let's do it. But I'll take any opportunity to praise this movie. Any opportunity. Whenever I see online, there's even a hint, a hint of, a, of an inkling of someone saying nice about it. I jump right in. <laughs> right. Let's go. That was the beginning. Well, I gave you the beginning. Oh, you did the beginning for us. All right. We're all set. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast, hosted by uh, the founders of thepinksmoke.com, myself, John Cribbs, and Christopher Funderburg. It's Friday night. We're here to talk about some Star Trek, specifically Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, everyone's favorite Star Trek movie. Am I wrong, Chris? Okay, so we have two excellent guests to talk about this tonight. We have the great Bill Tech, friend of the show, John Arminio. I, I think the two friendliest friends of the show, the people who have been on the most episodes uh, apart from us of anybody, uh, people we love to talk to. Thank you guys for coming on tonight. My pleasure. It's an absolute honor to be talking about this movie with you, gentlemen. I was so thrilled to hear you guys were doing this episode. I'm wild horses. Wild horses trained by William Shatner could not keep me from this episode. <laughs> so the reason this episode happened is it comes from me. And I think of everybody sitting here in this room, I am the least Star Trek knowledgeable, is going to be my guess about this. Like, I know enough about Star Trek to know that part six is the best movie and DS9 is the best series. Like I know enough about Star Trek to know that, to have those correct opinions. And I come from a Star Trek family. My sister and my dad are big Star Trek fans, but I'm, I'm not an expert. But what drove me to do this episode and ask you guys to do this episode and get people together for a Star Trek and symposium, which Mr. Bill Tech, I just found out, did not know that I was the driving force of wanting to do this. Um, is that this movie is really maligned. Uh, it's really, it almost killed the franchise. It's a really hated movie by fans. Normally, if anybody talks about it on a podcast, it's like a movie goof style, goofing on bad movie, you know, like let's make fun of how old, you know, Leonard Nimoy looks in this movie kind of podcast. And it's a I, big punchline. And the punchline is directed by William Shatner, right? Yes, yes. Um, and I think this is a really interesting film that I think is worth talking about other than as like series low point, which is the only time it gets brought up. And I specifically wanted to talk about it because I think that of all of the Star Trek movies, this is the most Star Trek in concept. It has the most to do with like the original series and next generation and sort of it's idea for a movie i think most people uh when they think of you know the best ones it's like star trek 2 is the best one it's the fan favorite but to me that's a very star warsy type movie that's like a, a space opera about fighting and military tactics and stuff like this this is like a high concept film right that's specifically the kind of uh 
strange sci-fi concept that drove a lot of the original series where the episodes would be about uh, like, we don't understand why this creature is angry at us. And it's because it's made of rock and the ore mining we're doing is taking the babies. Right. Or it's the, like the computer that calculates what would happen in a battle. So who has to die on the planet, these sort of big sci-fi concept ideas, which aren't, really in the movies all that often except in this one which is about what if you could find god at the center of the universe and then it was a false god you know like that's a very star trek concept to me so before we dig into this this too much that i'm sort of inflicting on people i just thought like you know um if we just bill john and john I think a good way to start would just be to go into it, talk a little about your history with Star Trek, and then what your favorite of the Star Trek movies are, is what I what I would say, too, to sort of locate your tastes in some way. Favorite of movies and favorite of the series. But I mean, not like favorite episode of the series, but which series you consider to be your favorite. And let's start with with John Armenio, who I've never done an episode with because he's always talking about James Bond <laughs> or military movies, two things I know less than nothing about. Oh, I'm so glad to be finally doing an episode with you, Chris. Um, yeah, I've been watching Star Trek literally all my life. Like, I'm pretty sure I saw this movie in theaters and I was born in 1984. <laughs> so, so my parents were confident enough in my ability to pay attention to this movie as a five-year-old. Um, um, and I mean, I, I love, I love all the Star Trek movies. I love the fact that like four is a movie that is patently a pro environmentalist fish out of water comedy and is still really good. Yeah. I love that. You know, two is an incredible, you know, submarine war movie. And I, I love that six is, you know, a really one-of-a-kind, like, Cold War parallel. I don't think there's a better illustration of the end of the Cold War in fiction <laughs> than Undiscovered Country. We came this close when we were talking about the Kane Mutiny uh, and, and Mr. Roberts to talk, just talking about Star Trek Six yeah. with your dad. Yeah. And, um, I mean, I, I just grew up watching the original series and Next Generations of those two are they going to be the series that are always going to be the closest to my heart. Excellent. So, uh, yeah. What about you, Bill? Moi, I uh, I probably wouldn't be even around if it wasn't for Star Trek. It literally saved my life. I was a very, very lonely kid. I was scared of everything. And one day I'm watching television and City on the Edge of Forever was on and I saw James Kirk. And I think when things work the way Star Trek works or other kind of phenomena like that, it's beyond any specific thing. It's like the costumes and the set design and the music and the acting of those actors in those roles. And the third producer and the second ad like everything has to just click yeah. to make something that magic it's just like and it's i guess in sports they call it the uh what do they call that the intangibles something like yes. that yeah the intangibles uh, so you know Team it's just chemistry yeah it just blew my mind and uh made me feel confident and i just would imitate captain kirk and that would kind of get me through the day and I'm a fanatic. I mean, my, there was I was read anything about it, watch anything about it. I, I went to my parents took me to a convention. My room looked like Captain Kirk's headquarters, and I've always had that that passion for it. And just by imitating Captain Kirk, and just like a dumb kid that just didn't know how to act, um, 
I don't know. I just, it really helped me evolve and it helped me become a bigger reader. Bottom line, big influence in my life. I really only watched the next generation, uh, the uh, original show. I, I've never really been able to connect to the other shows because I, to me, what appeals to me about Star Trek is, um, yes, definitely the big ideas and the big science, uh, science fiction ideas, you know, the, the parables about social issues. Remember when Loki was black on the white side and white on the right? He's like, Captain, clearly he's inferior to me. He's black on the right side. And, I'm on the, and it's like, I love the way science fiction can do that. The one you mentioned, I, I guess, which is um, A Taste of Armageddon about the war. I love when start, you know, sci-fi is so heady like that. But what I also really connected to was the friendship among the three characters, this this really strong story about these friendships and these relationships. And that really, really uh, hit home for me. And so that and kind of the two-fisted action-adventure stuff. And um, by the time the other shows came around, because I'm a little older than everybody, I was already kind of kind of grown up. So I never really had a chance to get into the next generation. I was already off, you know, a movie snob and watching other things. So I never really watched it. It never really hit home for me. So Peter Bogdanovich replaced... Star Trek The Next Generation for you is what you're trying to say. Him and, yeah, it's, it's all about Peter. It's all about Peter. If, <laughs> if you know that what a big influence in my life Captain Kirk and Peter are, you'd know why I have so much trouble in my personal relationships. <laughs> I could definitely see Peter Bogdanovich sitting down for afternoon tea with the Squire of Gothos. <laughs> Surely you jest, um, which I think is a line from from Squire of God. But you know what's funny is that, and I don't want to pre get ahead of anybody too much. But I find that the camera moves in this movie remind me as sacrilege, <laughs> but they move so fluidly, so gently. There's such beautiful blocking, and and no movie had camera moves like that in this summer of 1989, including mm -hmm. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I mean, it's really delicately, beautifully shot. So anyway, a little thinking about so Peter what, there. So what's your favorite one of the movies, uh, Bill? I, I like the, I think I like the trilogy, what I call the needs of the many or the needs of the one. And I've been working on kind of a fan trailer that combines all three of those movies and all the best lines. It's just treating it like one big, massive six hour movie. I really like that. Uh, so I liked all those three equally. And I also love this movie because it's just a standalone thing. And I also think it does a lot of things the other ones don't do. In terms of relationships and character, we'll get into all that. I would say that trilogy and this one, I'm cheating, those are my favorites. That's good. We will get into all that. I'll just say real quick, uh, as a kid, number four was my first one in the theater. I loved it, had a great time. And then I went and saw this one and was disappointed. Even as a kid, I felt like, oh, this one's kind of stale. There's something kind of off about this one. I don't like it. And then Star Trek Six came out, and it was my favorite. And I've loved Star Trek Six ever since. It just works for me, just on every level. But like with a bunch of other uh, sequels that I didn't really like when I was a kid, like, I don't know, Jaws the Revenge or Rocky Five and stuff like that, I've kind of come around to this movie in kind of an interesting way and become a defender of it. And it was when uh, uh, John Arminio started defending it on Twitter that you know I really kind of thought, all right, we should definitely... We should there should be more advocacy for this film. And for me, the big turnaround, just to bring it back to Chris, was when he said they go to find God. There's not a more Star Trek plot than that. That's when it really clicked for me. That's when I realized that all the things in this movie, right up to kind of the thing of there's not really necessarily a villain in this movie. It's just, you know, a film about people's motivations and then their connection to each other and their emotions. And that's really kind of the core of what Star Trek is. You do a big movie, it's not going to work because those are very 
intimate things to kind of detail and it's not big space battles and laser blasts and fights and stuff but uh that's what star trek is and that's what really nails it home but i love star trek the next generation when i was a kid uh i wrote a a, a, a parody musical from tommy the who's tommy <laughs> called trekkie that i sang to my brother and sister made them listen to it so i was all about next generation but like you uh mr tech i did not watch the other shows the other spinoff shows when i was younger i've only recently had binges on those shows and fallen in love with uh, Deep Space Nine and surprisingly enjoyed Voyager for the most part. So that's, it's always fun to like kind of catch up to that stuff eventually. I think Voyager, Star Trek is, Voyager is better in the context of the even worse shows that followed Voyager. I think Voyager oh, yeah. is, is sort of gets put in better and better light the more Picard type stuff there is out there. Oh, Jesus. Don't get me started. Let's um, not even talk about that. <laughs> So, John, do you want to take us through the plot of this in detail? John Cribs, JB. I'm calling you JB this whole time, Mr. John Benjamin. That'll work. Star Trek V uh, picks up with the new Enterprise, the Enterprise A, right? Uh, since Kirk destroyed the previous Enterprise in Star Trek Three, and they're kind of uh, refitting it. They're kind of getting it ready, space-worthy. It's uh, quite a mess right now. No one seems really comfortable with the ship yet. Uh, and nevertheless, they're kind of called into action when a Vulcan named Cybok on the planet Nimbus 3 stages uh, kind of a rebellion and takes on the Galactic Peace planet, John? Even on the planet, the planet, planet of Galactic Peace. Can you believe it? It's a failed, ironic. It's, it's, it's a failed <laughs> experiment where the Romulan uh, Federation and Klingon empires have tried to make this a planet where everyone can just kind of a neutral planet more or less where everyone can just kind of get together and try to make it work and it's a complete failure it's turned into this uh, almost apocalyptic wasteland of a planet that's where cybox finds his followers and uh takes these delegates hostage and so kirk and company are assigned to the planet to rescue the hostages and that's where we pick up on the action and of course there are many twists like cybox turns out to be spock's half brother sarek's uh other son who's been banished from vulcan for his uh, kind of extremist beliefs and his uh, faith in finding Shakari, the the Vulcan version of heaven, which is what he wants to do. He wants to uh, steal the Enterprise, cross the Great Barrier, and find Shakari and God residing on the planet. Um, and a little bit of, of background history on this this uh, uh, movie. It was directed by William Shatner and it was mainly directed because he had in his contract essentially anything for Leonard Nimoy I also get. Like in terms of their payment and stuff like that and since Le Nimoy had directed uh, the the previous film or uh, not the pre... Did he do part four also? He did, yeah. yeah three he, and four. So, so he did three and four. Shatner was then entitled to a turn at directing it. He was, he was contractually obligated to do it more or less. Um, this movie was uh, coming off of four, which had been a big hit, been a popular crowd pleaser. Uh, that's the one that I always refer to as that's the one moms like part four. So uh, uh, it was very popular. This movie had like the biggest opening weekend of any Star Trek film to date and was uh, generally widely disliked by audiences. It was absolutely creamed by critics. This this was the one where the sort of, the if you read reviews, the knives are completely out. All of those sort of like, look how old they are jokes 
coming in at it and and that sort of thing a lot of a lot of fun to be made of the aging crew with this and the response to it uh the um it was a film that had a sort of troubled production history where nobody was satisfied with the script it had been shatner's idea like basic idea and um just nobody had liked the idea but him there had been a lot of conflicts during the writing about where to go with it about character motivations uh things of that nature there had been a lot of behind the scenes conflict and it all added up to sort of a film that is notorious for almost killing the franchise that's sort There's of also that... a big writer's strike at the time the same yes. one that affected joe dante's the burbs where they couldn't uh, rework the script and uh and uh yeah, and refine it and, refine and it, all yes. of that. Um, That's why the Burbs is perfect. <laughs> no need for a rewrite. Um, and then the final thing is we mentioned the uh, the the Kling, uh, the Klingon, the the Vulcan version of heaven, Shakari. Uh, this is a reference to who they wanted to play Cybok, uh, uh, um, Spock's half brother, which was Sean Connery. Uh, and he was he had sort of agreed to do it. You hear different reports on how much he had agreed to play Cybok. Um, but the long and short of it is that doing Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade got in the way and they eventually had to scrap the idea. And instead, they got a very unknown actor named Lawrence Luckinbill, who this is basically it. If you look at his career, this is by far the biggest role he's ever done. He did some well-regarded TV movies but this is like, this is it for him. And I actually think he's excellent. Although when you know that they wanted Connery, it's impossible not to watch it and think, oh man, Connery would have been great in that moment. The whole time I, I watched it this time and felt like, oh man, I can see why they wanted Connery to do this. You know, uh, it makes a, makes a lot of sense for it. But I think Luck and Bill is great. And I think his softness that Connery doesn't have, he's less of a messianic presence than I think Connery would have been. He's sort of more of like, it's easy for me as the audience to believe that he really wants to heal people and believes in this search for God, that he's not sort of consumed by a vision of, of being a, a Messiah on his own in some way that's going to lead people to God. He comes across more like a searcher who's genuinely interested in helping heal people, which is what I like about him and is what makes the ending more tragic rather than being a hubristic figure who's consumed by his hubris ultimately in this false God. He's like a guy who really believes and is totally betrayed in his belief and sort of thinks he's found the end of the universe and just finds out that it's, that it's a fraud which I think is interesting uh, about and him. And we're all big Connery fans. What do you guys think? Do you think Connery would have been preferable as Cybok? Um, it, it would have been, it would have been a really cool movie, I think. But I, yeah, I think Lawrence Luckinbill is fantastic in the role. I think he provides a lot of nuance to the character. He's, he's not a huckster, you know, and, you know, like Chris yeah. said, there, there isn't, um, cause you know, now there might be, um, an impetus to read in sort of like a Joel Austin or even like a Jim Jones sort of cult leader yeah. thing about the character. But yeah, there is so much warmth and uh, an honesty to Cybok's quest that Lucky Bill brings to the, to the role. And I think there would have been um, a real aggressiveness to Connery in the role. And just practically, it would have doubled the budget. Yeah. at this point like there's no way they and it was already having it, it was already having budget problems yeah. and i think that is one thing i will say about this movie too i saw it in the theater when i was 10 years old and i have not watched it since before this week and i remembered this movie 
perfectly. I remembered every single scene in this movie. This movie really affected me when I was a kid. And it's funny that I was so confident about what it was. And then I saw it again and I did remember everything. Although I did when I watched it this time, I felt like I could see, oh, they have a budget crunch constantly in this movie. That there's just a bunch of times where you feel like you can just feel cut corners when you watch it in a way that I don't when I watch like part one or part part three you know yeah, for example in, in, in a way the the ship itself in this movie is almost kind of a metaphor for the film itself you know how it's it's brand new but it's fallen apart you know and it's not together and the crew doesn't feel comfortable on it you know it, it has that so you, you you the audience member kind of feel like oh there's something a bit off like this is not your old enterprise like this is a new thing that we're kind of going into here that's very going going very far left of the last movie but I but find the, that the, kind of thing charming these days, actually. Go ahead. The thing is, though, unfortunately, the budget was a few million dollars higher than four. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I have to say that it's probably due to an inexperienced director who just doesn't have the mileage of directing major motion pictures. He's He directed, Shatner only directed a, a few, like, T.J. Hooker episodes before this. Yeah. And, uh, and I, 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 and it, he's clearly a talented storyteller. Uh, by all accounts, he was an onset, you know, leader of the troops. Very energetic, very positive. But unfortunately, I just don't think they used the resources they had well. And the fact that ILM wasn't doing the effects, I think, also really hurt them. It's it's also bigger in scope than four, though. Mm -hmm. Sorry, Bill. Go. No, I just um, I I feel he's he seems very assured in his directing Shatner. So when I watched the movie. Even like the choice of uh, of Luck and Bill, if, if it would have been Connery, the movie has a whole other life. They throw more money at it. It looks different. But if Connery takes that cowl off, the audience would have been on its side. And it was such a weird summer. It's almost impossible to talk about Star Trek V and the fact that it failed without talking about the other movies. That summer, you had the Tim Burton Batman, which made $239,000 that summer. You had the... Um, uh, the, the Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which made yeah. $193 million that summer, right? And then this one, which made like 53. It was the 11th highest grossing movie of that summer. I found a and, clip of Shatner. A reporter's asking him, like, are you worried about Karate Kid 3 coming out? And he's like, we'll kick the Karate Kid 3's ass. <laughs> <laughs> he's the best. He's the best. Well, I, I just thought, you know, that there's always a movie uh, to me. It seems like every summer there's a movie that comes out that, that people dump on that I love that they just pick as their whipping boy. So I love John Carter. I think if you would have called it John Carter of Mars, it makes twice the money. But nobody knows what John Carter is. Give it a yeah. chance to, to fail. Or I, just I love, call, it, call, it, call it Princess of Mars. Like the book is fucking called, you know? That's be perfect. And give it, to, okay, it's just about outer space. Okay, or maybe not, but I get it. Give them a chance. I thought The Lone Ranger was a great movie. And um, yeah. they decided from the top. No, it's terrible. And I feel like this got lumped in with that. And there, it definitely looks to me, for me personally, the hokiness of some of the budgetary restraints just make it feel more Star Trekky. Because I'm an original <laughs> series guy, so yeah. it always felt hokey. Like that alien comes out at the end, and you're like, "Oh!" Right. But to me, oh, that's great. I've seen just a big light in the sky, and uh, uh, oh, it's, and I've reacted to that so on the show. So everything from the fact that. So for, for me, it's, it's a very self-assured movie. I couldn't believe how confidently I felt Shatner was 
bring the story. And I think some of that has to do with retaining Harv Bennett, who wanted to leave the series, and Shatner convinced him to stay. And uh, and this guy's a tough producer, kind of you know knows what he's doing. They had some uh, technical mishaps. I read the the book that his daughter, uh, I want to say she wrote, but I think she dictated it because she never goes back like you'll see these story threads and then it just goes nowhere i read you know what i think it was called captain's log right. i read it uh, because i loved it in the theater and i saw all those movies opening night you know uh, i think this was the summer of ghostbusters 2 maybe of indy 3 of uh, batman i saw all those movies including star trek opening night the crowd was with it when i saw it i was get this so much older than you guys i am i think i was 20 20 maybe 21, I closed up my, my video store that I managed and went over to the movie theater Friday night. Um, but uh, I, I feel, you know the old Star Trek, you know, they'd shoot on a, on a, in a park and they'd pretend it was like a planet yeah. and they'd always shoot at that park that had the rocks. Well, they actually are shooting at a park this time. They're at, they're at you know, Yosemite. they start and yeah, they're at Yosemite. And then at the end they're in, a, man, it could have been on the old show when they're walking down the hill and you see the boots on the rocks. Yeah. I was like, this is Star Trek. Like, this is my shit. Uh, the shuttlecraft, all the kind of, the fact that someone takes over the ship and they're stuck on the ship, the whole thing, because of budgetary restraints, they would have those episodes, I believe. And I, maybe that's what's driving the movie, but it just had a, uh, uh, for me, it felt very Star Trekky. What I, I like I, about it. I'm going to say I agree with both of you guys, actually. Uh, I agree with Bill with what he said earlier about there being like a really confident sort of flow to this film. Chapter does do a good job directing it, but uh, the action scenes are clunky. Like there's definitely some stuff he's not good at and he's not an expert at. But for me to kind of, in my mind, kind of consolidate all of this together, I think it works because it's not, this is not going to be an action movie. You know, when they assault the uh, Paradise City, when they go and try to save the hostages, by the way, I have to just say, this is the first time I noticed that like one of the crew gets killed during this raid. How embarrassing <laughs> must that be? Jeez. Don't get killed on this mission to save these diplomats where no one's really a bad guy. How are you going to tell their, their family about that? That's just terrible. But I didn't, I didn't notice that. Wow. But, but all that stuff, you know, that kind of clunkiness works because the more intimate moments, the more drama-filled theatrical moments are terrific. The scene with the three of them in the kind of... Um, it's not a ready room. It's like a lounge. The ob observation yeah. deck? Obs the observ yeah. With Cybok is just mesmerizing. I mean, that scene is one of the best Star Trek scenes yeah, ever. It's so well made. It's so well done. And going so in those in scenes, I think Shatner yeah. just kills it. It does a great job. Yeah, I think for me, the budgetary stuff, this this is actually a bigger, more ambitious movie than four. You know, when you, to compare its budget, it does have like, the raid on paradise city and it has the passing through the barrier sequence which you can feel he sort of has the idea to make it something like the end of 2001 but doesn't but there's clearly not the same budgetary conceptual ideas happening with it and i think that i agree with you john and and bill i agree with everyone shatner his directing is frequently quite confident, quite elegant, quite interesting in a way that he'll have uh, tracking shots that pass off in a very elegant way. And I'm like, oh, that's a really cool way to do a little dialogue scene. You know, this is actually really well put together in certain very striking frames 
uh, in blockings. You know, he does a really good job when it's Spock, Bones, and Kirk in frame finding different constellations to place them within the frame and essentially give them all a close-up at the same time or give them all a medium shot uh, in a good way. But at the but at the same time, I do think when it is like the raid on Paradise City, they just don't have enough money for it. And the directing can't hide the lack of money, which is, I think, where an experienced director would come in, is that they'd be able to hide the moments when we just got to stay in close up here or we got to cut between a bunch of inserts or something like that because we just, we don't, we don't have the money to do this. If the only effect we have is a guy climbing over a wall rather than an explosion going off and a guy flying through the air, you know, like we've got to film this slightly differently than, than what we're doing. And I think he has a hard time with that. This is, why, maybe... this is why you start noticing a guy, random guy getting killed with a pebble gun yeah, yeah. so that Uhura <laughs> could do a fan dance and Kirk can fight a cat lady, you know. Poor guy. Sorry, I'll leave. I'll, I'll draw. I will say, <laughs> just mentioning the, the cat lady and the fan dance, watching it this time, it reminded me of its aesthetic is not like Star Wars and stuff, which I think is an easy comparison when you have like the cantina on the desert planet. It right. actually reminded me a lot of Total Recall of not just because of the three-titted cat lady, but it does, it belongs more to the RoboCop Verhoeven-esque aesthetic where there's the like guy on the TV doing the I'd buy that for a dollar, essentially telling people to move to Paradise City. I think that the mindset of the production design is closer to Verhoeven, uh, which actually I agree with Bill, that's a little closer to the TV, the letting the seam show a little bit than it is to the ultra-realistic grimdark Dennis Villeneuve concept of sci-fi you know that it belongs more to the a little bit tongue-in-cheek a little bit knowing a little bit camp version of what sci-fi was which is where the original series was and that's credit to uh, Herman Zimmerman who was production designer on this film and would go on to do the next several films and new TNG and DS9 so they even though this film was a financial failure they kept him yeah. in the franchise for the next you know 15-20 years Absolutely. And it's a beautiful looking movie. I mean, in terms of like, yeah, it looks a little cheap, but the fact that they brought back those primary colors in the beginning with Kirk's mm -hmm. climbing. I mean, it's just, it's just got some gorgeous stuff. And it. it's funny. It reminds me of Star Trek three in the sense that um, it's got some of the best stuff, best looking stuff in it. Like three has when they're stealing the enterprise and these great, yeah. and then it has some really hokey looking stuff. Like when they're on the plant and on Genesis and you're like, Oh my God. So th <laughs> this is the same kind of thing where there's these gorgeous shots. And then he really knows how to shoot the intimacy of actors I'd say. And then it also has these cheesy things. Like when, when he's falling off the mountain or some of the shuttlecraft effects or some of the other special effects. But I think for me, it sets itself apart in three ways. There's, um, there's always a great sense of play in the Star Trek movies. Um, yeah. And this definitely has that, is, there's a playfulness to it. And it, it has a great sense of uh, movie making. Like this is a beautifully made movie in terms of the blocking and everything like that. And, the, and then the performances. And, and this is, I always say, if you could only, if you could do a Star Trek movie as a play, this is the one you do because it's a lot of stage lighting and theatrical stuff, the stuff on the observation deck, but the stuff at the campfire at the beginning, it's all faces and reactions. And, and as the show goes on, I'd, I'd you know, talk a little bit more about that, but I think it it's using Shatner's an actor, a Shakespearean actor that won the Obie for the world of Susie Wong on Broadway was in a shot in the dark on Broadway. And 
it's an actory movie. It's just got a lot of love for actors. And Lawrence Luckinbill, I think, is outstanding. I know, yeah. you know, it would have brought the audience over, but Luckinbill is plays it so well. He's like, he's like a little bit of a little bit of Connery, but a little bit of like that kooky person in your family that's always doing something new agey that you're like, oh, I'm gonna be stuck <laughs> talking to this person for five minutes. And then a little bit of like Abby Hoffman. Like he he's got it all in there. He's ah oh man, he's terrific. He should have been in so so many things. And I I, I, I love him too. And I, him coming out of the desert, you know, in the beginning of the film and the revealing himself. The opening scene is so that, fucking awesome. Yeah, it's so, it's such a beautiful shot and it's so well played. You have this crazy looking dirt farmer um, <laughs> and, you know, trying to load this like weird shotgun of rocks and uh, look, that, Cybots. That's John. His name is John. John. I know because yes, I read yes. the novelization. So, <laughs> yes. Played by Rex Harmon, who was in Spectre of the Gun. And um, was uh, one of the oh, one of the cowboys. I want to say Morgan Earp in, yeah, uh, Morgan Earp. in the Star Trek episode, yeah. the original series. Yeah. And. And so you see this mysterious figure, you know, with a shadow over his face, reveal himself. He's a Vulcan. He laughs. And it's such a great way to knock the audience off balance in the beginning of this film. You don't know where you are or who or, you know, what's going on. And I think if that moment was Sean Connery, it would have played so differently. Um, I think that moment would have been to the film's disadvantage if it was a a movie star. But the fact that you don't know who it is, it's a completely mysterious figure. I think that plays to the film's strength. Yeah, I love that opening scene. That opening scene is so knockout. And the way you think he's going to be a bully or violent or a blowhard, but instead he's like this agent of like inner peace, right? It's so surprising that that's what that character is up to, the way he's presented and what the scene is. It's just, I really love how surprising that character is. And I think that... um. John, you mentioned earlier, one of the the versus uh, Connery versus Luckinbill, the way Luckinbill plays it, when the team turns on Kirk and is sort of like, we're on Cybok's side, he's released our pain, we're true believers in some way. If it's Connery, I think it feels completely different. I think it feels like they're all going over to the side of a villain right? Because he's a charismatic, magnetic figure. And there's just something insidious about like being Sean Connery's lackey or crony. It just feels like you got it, like you're in creep town somehow. Whereas Luckinbill is, has like a, a, a gentle affableness to him and sort of a vuncular quality that when they join his side, it feels like he really cured, uh, you know, Bones is, is, is pain. He really cured him of that. And that's really important to him. And they really believe in him as like doing some work that's good work, you know? And I think that that's a very powerful change for the Yeah, again, that betrayal. scene, just the way Bones turns to him and says, you know, and says, you know, what do I do, you know, with my father? What do I do? And he gives him a look that doesn't answer him, but just is mm-hmm. almost kind of mirrors his like confusion. I love yeah. that he has this great balance of charisma and authority and also of, like vulnerability and like playing it like an open wound. They they go into a lot of, in the novelization about how taking all this pain from people is a burden on him. Like he actually carries the pain of all the people that he cures. And so he's a really tragic figure who is only driven by his need to find Shakari. That he, this is his absolute belief that everything he's doing and, and all the suffering that he is helping to, you know, assage and other people is 
to find this ultimate goal, this ultimate des destination. So I love Cyborg. He's a terrific character. I, I think that makes Kirk's response all the more fascinating because I I think that the film doesn't land philosophically one way or the other because Kirk's response is, you know, I need my pain. It makes us yeah. who, who I am. And that is both true and also profoundly unhealthy. <laughs> um, yeah. But if, if, if Cybok is carrying everyone's pain that he heals, then he is also like Kirk in somebody whose pain makes him who he is. And that's his whole purpose for finding Shakari. So I think that mirrored. I think that's why Cybok doesn't. I think that's why Cybok doesn't argue with him and mm -hmm. doesn't try and seduce him and win him over. I think Cybok has a like, I understand that too. You know, like Cybok doesn't really lay it on thick, like, no, I'm going to cure you and I'm going to fix this. He hears that and his reaction is like, I understand that completely for exactly the reason you're saying of we're the same. I think philosophically the most interesting moment. Uh, Bill, go, because you're, you're raring to talk. I want to hear what you No, think. no, please, please tell me what you think the most interesting philosophical moment you're Is saying. that Spock is healed and releases his pain, but Spock is like, I'm staying with my boy Kirk anyway. Like it's, you know, like there are things bigger than what you released in me. There's things that are more valuable to me than being like emotionally resolved and healthy and finding God. And that's my boy, James T. Kirk, which I think is a really like, again, a third perspective for that scene or a fourth, even with Bones having a different perspective than them. I guess that's exactly how too. <laughs> oh, so moving when he says that. Oh, my God. D. Kelly's such a great actor. And man, those guys got the parts in this movie. They really get to do it. This is the one movie where they really get to flex and they're amazing. But I wanted to address that, too. You talk about the mirror between Cyborg and Kirk. What a beautiful point. And to that point, they almost have, you know, back to back mirror scenes where where, you know, Kirk says to Cyborg, you know, you're, you're mad. And Cyborg just looks at him so emotionally and he says, am I? Like, he doesn't know. Yeah. And it's a perfect, because later when when uh, Cyborg says to Kirk, you know, leave the phaser, you know, when they, when they get to the planet, Kirk says, all right, we'll play it your way. And you go, yeah. wow, this is so, and the movie is the only movie of that summer, for sure. I mean, Indiana Jones doesn't have these moments. Uh, I can't, Batman certainly does have these moments. This movie keeps turning on character it doesn't turn on action it turns on character which is completely unique in a hollywood movie he doesn't go with kirk as you pointed out not because he can't because he's forced because of right no because that's his boy if he yeah. wouldn't do that and you go wow i've never seen that before and then his other <laughs> in a hollywood movie and our blockbuster summer blockbuster and mccoy i can't really go either and then cyborg is pleased he smiles and he's like i get it that's good. Yeah. You guys are friends. And you're like, this is not your average blockbuster movie. He's not going to meet Hitler at yeah. a right, you know, like in, <laughs> and it's in all, Indiana Jones. And it's all tied to philosophical concerns. That's what I mean is this is the most Star Trek is all the decisions they're making right then are about the nature of pain and God and existence and the great barriers and the far end of the universe that can't be passed through, right? I think that that's something that's a very Star Trek concept. Uh, again, you can't see that in any movie in summer of 89. I think you can't see that in anything but Star Trek. I don't think in modern pop culture that when we talk big Hollywood pop culture stuff, that there's any series that's on that wavelength at all that this movie is on. 
He even has yeah. that, that, that small line that's really easy to miss, Cyborg, where he says, these three are really tight. This is going to be tough for me to convert. Oh, fantastic line. That's yeah. beautiful. And it's all about, this is the really one, the, the one where they were like, okay, this is clearly about the friendship. It's not about anything else, really. I mean, it's, yes, okay, it is about finding God, but it's such a, I mean, Shatner even lays out his thesis at the end of the movie where he's like, which is another radical thing to see. And one where they're finding the Holy Grail, the movie that's doing well with Sean Connery. In this movie, he's like, maybe God's inside in your heart. Uh, Friendship, in the, in love. The hu- in the human heart, which he says, yeah. throwing it in fucking Spock's face right there. Ah, that's very funny. Seems like a big oversight for like the the theme of the movie to say human heart into a Vulcan's face. Yeah. Well, I think it's I think it's like when they say, Not you know. those fucking Romulans. Am I right, guys? <laughs> I think it's like when Cybox says, and this is how woke I am, when he's he's when I was watching it again this weekend, he's like, all men carry a secret pain. And I was like, well, I think yeah. you mean, you know, men that's in everything. <laughs> even the Horda. Carries yes, <laughs> even the Horda. And I wish I could remember those things that flew through the air in Operation Annihilate that stick to your back. What are those called? Oh, I have no idea. I don't oh, know. I can't remember. No. But even those guys have a pain. Even those guys got and I don't mean guys as in the masculine. <laughs> but I, I think those. that's another way that the simplicity of this film works for it rather than against it. I think maybe the time people watched it, it's a very, you could just you could basically say it's, he takes over the ship, they get to the planet, and then it's the end, right? It's the big climax. Like there's not a lot of uh, really big narrative moments to kind of comparatively, especially to something like Wrath of Khan or Undiscovered Country where there's just a lot going on but it gives the film that much more room to breathe and appreciate, you know, that it's going to like be about these characters specifically. And people might've also kind of reacted negatively to the fact that Cybok isn't really much of a villain. What's the worst thing he does is steal the enterprise, which Kirk did in part two, you know, you can't even really call him a bad guy for doing that. That it's not like the classic kind of revenge scenario where, you know, someone is out to blow up the enterprise for a personal grudge or anything like that. It's really, this guy's crusade is one mission to go where he's got to go and do what he's got to do to get it. And it's, I also uh, love the reflection of what he wants is he's trapped on a planet and needs a starship to get off. And then that's what God wants too, right? The fake Ooh. God needs a starship to get off a planet he's trapped on. And both of them use deception to get it. It's very interesting. And then they obviously get locked in with each other and the face he's looking at is him. That's the philosophical so. idea is that like, it's God inside your human heart, that whatever God is, it's a perfect reflection of whatever you are, right? That that's going to be the nature of what God is by the nature of the universe being holistically connected, I think is the entire concept of it, is that God is an outside force when God is actually, uh, would be inseparable from you by definition, right? I think is one of the philosophical ideas, which again, it's in the human heart. And what a tragedy that moment is for Cybok, because, you know, not only is the falseness of his God revealed to him, but it takes his own form and says, watch these puny things die horribly, which is the most anti-Cybok sentence that could ever be said. And so for him to be confronted with that in his own face must be such yeah. a nightmare. And so he has no choice but to sacrifice himself um, to save these, these uh, you know, the, the crew of the Enterprise. And it's such a beautiful moment for what has up to this point been the antagonist. And I, I love that bit at the end. Yes. And also, but it's again, it is his fault they're there. 
and yes. he has been wrong and that he is the destructive force and that moment of realization of i have been the destructive force i think is philosophically what the movie is getting at is that you can have the good person who's the destructive force mm -hmm. again it's the the issue of theodicy of right like the the question of why does god if he's all powerful allow bad things to happen right and then you say if you're a reflection of god why does cybok who we know to be a good person based on the movie allow terrible things to happen right why does he allow tragedy to happen and i think that that's all i think these are a lot of um unresolvable ironies that mm -hmm. it wants to have in that way but i agree 100 sure. on the real in paradise city he's even saying this is not what i wanted i didn't want bloodshed you know yeah yeah because kirk has the has the plan to go undercover and throw some punches and he's like why didn't you just negotiate with me we would have <laughs> come aboard i could have been your prisoner absolutely an army of galactic light <laughs> you know armies get into to shooting wars <laughs> I, rem I remember Nimoy promoting the show on uh, on Johnny Carson, and they're like, you know, and he I think he took the clip where he gives, you know, they're attacking Paradise City, and he gives the horse the neck pinch, you know, yeah. and he lays that horse down very gently, also to this movie's gentle <laughs> character, um, uh, and 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 uh, Carson was like, how did he do? How did Shatner do? And he's like, it's really it's just like my movie, except there's a lot more running and jumping. <laughs> <laughs> which is bill and that's what he said and i, I thought yeah that's, that's right on i mean because i love nemo's movies too um but i obviously just much prefer the ca the way he moved the camera I, it was like leonard yeah. was you know cutting this guy's doing some other thing um and I, I i i think those harv bennett bookends you know having read about all these things and you know knowing how much harv bennett likes to bookend scenes and uh, or rather movies let's set something up at the top of the movie let's pay it off at the end of the movie i thought this movie did that really well with so many things um it's a it's a pretty well-made movie. I, I, having read, I, I think, I forget his daughter's name, but her book, you know, the, the one I was mentioning, I think she dictated. She talks about some of the, I think they had to do reshoots for like two weeks they lost on the bridge. Yeah. And that what, what the solution they came up with was to seal it up and just put a Steadicam in there, which I think is the first Steadicam used in, in Star Trek movies. And then for the, it was the first time you kind of saw a 360 bridge. Yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of sweeping across characters' faces in this movie. Yeah, there is, but no flares, no lens flares. <laughs> no. Uh, well, maybe one at the beginning, you know, with, the, with the, when he's climbing the mountain. Yeah. But um, but so they have they have that, and then I I know that they ran into big problems with that ending when they get to the to the thing to find the god creature. Because um, rock and, monsters. Yeah, man, and that's it's it's rough. I mean, I love this movie, but I do feel like I I, I like. I can't get past that part quick enough because I feel bad. I'm like, this is, but they're acting their hearts out. All those guys. I and feel like that scene should be longer. Like it should be like a half an hour on the planet. Like they should get there earlier and have a different relationship to the false God other than show up and it's over. You know what I mean? I feel like it's a little rush. I don't, I certainly don't feel like this is a, a flawless movie in any way. I think it's a really, really interesting movie, which is in some ways better than a flawless movie. <laughs> you know, if you, if you were to say what's a better directed and, and well put together and professionally made movie, this or Star Trek into darkness, I'd be like, well, it's obviously Star Trek into darkness, which is a stupid piece of shit. You know, like I don't need I don't need journeyman nothing out of my Star Trek. I don't need, you know, James T. Kirk, you know, space puncher. That's not actually 
the only thing I need with the lens flares and the jumping around and fire the photons and all of that crap. But the tilted angles, the tilted angles. Yeah. (laughs) I don't, I don't, I don't think that movie is anything. I don't think the two uh, new ones, uh, are there three? Who knows? There's three. I don't don't (laughs) think there are three. I don't think there's anything. I think they're literally nothing. I think, I think they're the equivalent of a cotton candy that someone has spilled water on. They're just a dissolving material that as they're, you're near them, it's already gone. You know, like I picture those movies are like a film that burns in the projector. So it, the thing is already gone when the movie is done running. Like there's nothing left, not even the celluloid itself. But sabotage, sabotage. <laughs> well, we like this so much, we'll do it. We'll do it three times or twice. <laughs> but this, movie, I like the... which I think is much more of a mess, is much, much more compelling and interesting and beautiful film to me. I think it's a gorgeous movie. I like the first one, but I like it because, you know, Chris Pine is playing Bill Shatner because yeah. because uh, Carl uh, Urban is playing DeForest Kelly. So it's it's but that only the first I love I love I love all the actors in it. I, yeah. I yeah. really the, like yeah. all of those actors. And that they're playing the actors is a yeah. mind-blowing thing, you know what I mean? But um I, I in this movie, you you know, getting back to the actors, it was so interesting that summer because I was aware of it. I'm watching older people and they're referencing it every five minutes. The whole movie's about morality, uh, mortality rather. And, you know, they address that they're older. And I thought, well, they're, they're not just writing it in so they can walk slowly. They're dealing with it. You know what I'm saying? When they're climbing and so forth. So I, I was touched by that. And I thought how interesting that we were watching a, a lot of older actors. I also love part six. And you know, we were watching all these older actors, even as youths and, and having such empathy for them. And I, I guess now maybe young people see, I don't know those movies with Helen Mirren where they're all secret agents. They have a couple of those movies. <laughs> I don't know what they are, but um, you know, the ones I mean, yeah, they're, they're like a secret red. team. Red. Okay. Red. You, if you say so. Um, but it's, I don't think it's the same. This was a major franchise anchored by really older gents that are addressing it every five, you know, but not in a, there were still action movies. So I thought that was really interesting. And I love how they gave and, you know, they gave everyone their little hero moment. They give all the characters their little hero moments and they, they give them a little more to do, you know, who gets to play a lot of them. Michelle Nichols gets to play a lot of different things. James Doohan gets to play a lot of different things. And also speaking of character, he can't, be turned because he's busy fixing the enterprise. It's a very <laughs> Mr. Scott thing to do. Even an hour and 22 minutes into the movie, they're like, don't you want to see Cybox and get your pain? He's like, no, I'm going to fix the freaking transporter. He's too busy. <laughs> and, but it's very true to character. He does get and, fixed in the novelization. I got to warn you. Oh, that oh. death of his nephew, yeah. Peter oh, from part oh. two. Oh, wow. Comes up wow. Again. It's a big mistake taking the fact that it's his nephew out of the theatrical cut of, of part two. You know, it's not. And the other big mistake being that when they're climbing up the what I'll call the Jeffrey's tube, when they're going up, the, well, that's what they call it. But not in that <laughs> movie, not in that movie. They don't call it that. But when they're going up the tube and Kirk says, that young man, that's my son. And this boss is fascinating. It makes his sacrifice so much better. And that's just the stuff you get on the TV version. But, um, you know, it's 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 interesting. They repaid him. He gave everybody something to do, including, you know, Chekhov got to be captain of the Enterprise. Sulu gets to ride the horse and jump off the horse, do all these cool things. And, of course, they all stab him in the cranium the first chance they get because that's what those actors do. <laughs> um, I'll tell you something oh, yeah, I didn't yeah. think of when I was a kid and saw this, but but do now. Can't help it. Guys, are Scotty and Uhura 
doing yeah. it. They're hooking up in this in this movie. They are, which I thought was terrific. You know, yeah, yeah. I it, I I do have mixed feelings about that. Just sort of like springing it on the audience. But I but Nichelle Nichols and James Doohan play that moment with such like genuineness and warmth that it just immediately wins me over. And the fact that their date is to like repair the Enterprise with these like <laughs> like MREs from space, and just I'm I'm sold immediately. It just it's so cute. <laughs> Well, she says we were supposed to go on shore leave together. And in the novel, again, the novelization, it uh, says that he was going to show her Scotland. She was going to go down to Scotland and he was going to show her. He says, don't go on the tour. I'm going to show you the real Scotland, like all the real great places. And he gets so busy with the Enterprise that he has to break the date. And she doesn't know. Did you guys notice how that is filmed when she pulls the MREs up? The like mylar flap bags. It's filmed like uh like a Zaz joke, like something out of Naked Gun. She walks, <laughs> she walks in not holding them, and then she's like, "I got dinner," and she suddenly got it in the wide shot. It's all done in one shot. She walks in and she walks to a medium, and then she pulls them up out of nowhere. Somebody appears. It's like the stand- end of Hot Shots, right? Where he pulls yes. up the chicken. And- <laughs> yes, somebody standing off frame hands her that, like a PA, so she can pull it up. It's like it's completely like a like a zazz joke it's very bizarre <laughs> reminds me it's something weird al does in his music videos a lot he puts his hands out of frame and then lifts up holding new stuff and i was like that's such a strange thing that they did right there and that's actually one thing that i do want to talk about because this this was a movie which is the comedy aspect of it um this was a movie i saw when i was a kid that i remember very vividly knowing adults hated it, knowing it was getting bad reviews and um, not understanding it. I had had the same experience with Howard the Duck and Ishtar where I saw them and I was like, there's a lot to like in those movies. I don't get why I'm being told these are the worst movies in the world. Like you're obviously not watching actual bad movies. Like you, have you seen a kid's movie? You know, have you seen Daryl? You know what I mean? Like this is, these movies are better than that. You know, like, how can you say this is the worst? And this movie was definitely in that same category of this is just the fucking worst. And I do think when I was watching it again now, I do think the the major consistent mistake that this movie makes is there's too much bad comedy in it, right? Like, like, uh, like Duan saying, I know the ship like the back of my hand and then bonking his head, right? Or the like, a lot of the home on the range type stuff where they're joking around. With Sulu a- and Chekhov getting lost in the woods, that whole moment. Yeah, and, and I do think that that's left over from four, which is a comedy. Part four is a fish out of water comedy and it's very funny and very likable. And it was a huge hit for them. And I feel like they thought, oh, okay, people like when their Star Trek is funny. So we're going to be funny again. And I don't know where it comes from, but I do wish none of it was in this movie. I think the character moments of funny when they're friends busting each other's chops or trading quips or the naturally sort of organic stuff is funny. I think the like Spock in the super boots, saving people like that shit is not funny, you know? And I think there's a huge amount of it. I was wondering what you guys thought of that. You said it's a cross, it's a crossover tactic. I mean, you said that Star Trek four is for moms. I think it's more for like non-Star Trek fans, right? They make it like the crocodile Dundee of the Star Trek movies, you know? Yeah, they have to have that humor but why do you think trip. people hate this movie? Uh, do you think it's just the comedy, or do you think what's the explanation? Well, 
I mean, I think it's just at that time anyway, Bill Shatner was less, you know, he's a little more revered now. I think people are like, oh, that guy's, he's cool. He, that was still iffy. Um, but I think a lot of it is just the circumstances around it. A lot of fans that should like it hate the comedy. So a lot of like really hardcore Star Trek fans, you know, hate, and you probably know this, hate that moment when Scotty bonks his head. I can defend almost everything except Sulu and Chekhov getting lost, which John, uh, which, what is Mr. Cribbs's uh, middle name? Benjamin JB. Ah, what, what JB mentioned. Um, uh, you know, that one's tough to defend because it's really pretty goofy and I could almost get around the. Uh, and it goes on so long. It's like a it's three a, minute a, scene where you're like, well, I can't believe they're not ending this. <laughs> you know, I and say, then. I will say, and I'm hesitant to say this because, Bill, there's been a little too much last crusade bashing on this episode for my money but I will there can never be enough there can never be enough that, that kind of bad dad humor is also in last crusade i'm thinking about like the guy stamping the book in the library while indy's breaking into the floor like goofy what? spielberg type comedy don't, don't oh, well i love, I, Steve, I love Steve, it i love steven it. spielberg steven spielberg is my man right this is one of my all-time favorite directors i know i'm going out on a limb there but that guy can really but of course i love steven spielberg but that that movie might be my you know hot is hot take it <laughs> but that is, you know, man you're you're not even going to get support from me on that i fucking love last Crusade. i know you guys <laughs> do no i know you guys do i know you guys but, do, and i like but, it very much but i don't know if this helps or hurts you i also like crystal skull so yeah but i love no, fucking great I love Crystal Skull. We're doing a Crystal it. Skull episode, me and you, sometime. I, I can't defend the part in the trees, you know, but I can it's defend everything hard. else. Yeah. Everything, it's very hard. <laughs> everything else I'll defend all day, especially um, as a, when you're a parent. You're like, oh, Crystal yeah. Skull's... I mean, all his movies are about that, but anyway... Yeah, it's pretty fucking great. Um, <laughs> but I love that movie. But I was going to say, uh, uh, regarding those, those comedy bits... You know, some land better than others, and I, from everything I've read, yes, they were told to beef all that up in the in the script. It doesn't even the goofy stuff by the campfire doesn't totally bother me because the show had it. It had it in a more genteel, character based way. It's just somewhat broad. You're right; the character moments land a lot better. But I'm so forgiving of it because I'm so happy to see those actors just playing as opposed to, you know they don't really get to play in the other movies. The other movies are so plot driven, you know, and here it's a little more relaxed. So that's the, again, the most Star Trek, it's the most Star Trek to give them that space to breathe. Yeah. I think when you have a combination of several bits of bad comedy, um, franchise stalwarts that have been around a long time and that the public perceives as too old, um, and a real earnestness and, and lack of irony that all combines to, um, critics and the public sort of getting their fangs out and you know this is something we can trash uh which i think is really unfortunate like i know this is something that the pink smoke has covered in the past but for real fuck the razzies like (laughs) get at this is the worst movie 89 go fuck yourself like yeah give me a break absolutely stupid I'm with as, you guys. As you were ta- saying that, I thought, yeah, it's a real razzy mindset. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a big popular franchise. Let's take it down a notch. Yeah. But yeah. not even, it's a franchise that's like on its way down. Let's take our cheap shots when it's already falling to the mat. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's never like the Razzies are never like, you know what fucking sucks? Search for Spock. This is the worst movie of the year. You know, they're never, that's never what they do. It's something that's like, 
uh, this is a train wreck waiting to happen, you know, where we're going to get our shots in too. They're just never, if they had an original opinion on what's bad, I would respect it. But instead it's just taking the cheapest cheap shots. It's just like rabbit punching somebody in the kidneys who's already getting fucked up by the world, you know? I think that's a great point. Do you think that the fact that Next Generation, this is the first movie released while Next Gen was on the air. Oh. And do you think that had anything to do with the box office? And also, I have to mention, I love that Shatner brought back the Jerry Goldsmith score and Jerry mm-hmm. Goldsmith. Because it's, it's so good. It's so yeah, good. And it, it also... And it also kind of was doing at that time, they were like, okay, well, we got to tie it into next gen. I think they were doing that. Hey, we got to show that the clans are starting to make peace. They don't know the wonderful part six is coming, but they do have wharf on the bridge. And I know that, you know, don't live in a vacuum. Uh, and so even though I wasn't watching the show, uh, let's start to make those threads happen a little bit here and there. So I think it was trying to do that as well. Um, Just to talk about Jerry Goldsmith, John, you mentioned the burbs this time watching it. There's two phrases of music that Jerry Goldsmith uh, uses also in the um, Gremlin soundtrack. There are identical Ooh. note runs in it that I noticed this time. Anyway, go on. Excellent. <laughs> oh, that's fucking cool. You know, I could talk about Goldsmith and the Burbs. You know, any opportunity yeah. I get. You know, last time we did, uh, um, that's uh, that's Klopek. Is that Slavic? Throw <laughs> 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 um, Theodore. I know that, you know, Next Generation, you know, was a kind of a slow, you know, train taking off out of the station. You know, it took a season or two to really get its footing, kind of find its voice before it kind of became the classic series that it is. I know but, I'm in the minority, but I, I love Encountered Farpoint. I think it's another great big one. Star Trek idea of these <laughs> like non-humanoid beings being imprisoned and enslaved so they can make like fruit for people. And they <laughs> sort of, you know liberate themselves and float off into space so they can make more little squid space babies. I love the one where Jordy uh, takes charge of the Enterprise because everyone else is on the planet and there's that officer who's just a dick to him and so he separates the saucer section just to get away from this guy. <laughs> That's a great one. So they're a good, they're a good episode cool. in season one for sure. I, I, so. I, I, go ahead, John. Sorry. No, no. Go ahead, Bill. I just, I don't want to mess up the goodwill we have going from my boy Bill Shatner. Who, that's the reason I call myself Bill, because I heard it was William, but he called himself Bill. Good enough for me. It's seven or eight. Call me Bill. I don't want to mess it up the goodwill, but did you guys see the doc that Shatner did on the early rough days of the next generation? No. no. I did. Yeah, the, I did see that. And what did you think about it? Is, I can't remember is it the, the one title. about the fans? No, no. It's about, it's about here's like, all the crazy Ron shit Barry that being happened. opposed to like everything they were doing and kind of being like a... Um, you know, thorn in their side because he was saying, no, I know that's wrong for Star Trek and this is wrong for Star Trek and everything. And it's about the whole first few years. And, you know, uh, uh, Tasha Yar leaving, uh, Denise Crosby leaving and all these different things. So, yeah, I know a lot about it for guys that's never watched it. <laughs> well, I mean, Shatner clashed with Roddenberry on the script for this movie. So, you know, like it, I think a lot of the people who had creative decisions and creative input into Star Trek that were Roddenberry at some point clashed with him. Because sometimes you know, he, any very very egotistical creator is going to clash with other creators. He, he, reminds, he, he reminds me of Matt Groening so much where it's like, this is the guy who created it. But then you look and it's the individuals who actually did the best work were not him. And so many ideas that are terrible that are shot down are like Roddenberry or Graining's, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think he had some amazing ideas and did some great writing, but he also had some 
real bad ones too. <laughs> well, it's crazy that he would have a problem with this particular story. I mean, Return of the Archons, Who Mourns for Adonis, The Apple, yep. all these original episodes about a godlike, a malevolent godlike figure. I'm gonna tell you something. Philosophy well, of, it, it, of but it wasn't his idea, John. When <laughs> I write a but he, he when I write a when I write a god thing script, it's got some power to it. Okay, I'm the only one that can do that here. That's like it's, I don't do Gene. There's a guy, I don't know if you guys ever listened to Inglorious Trexperts. Have you ever heard that show? No. Yes. It's a it's a uh, a podcast, and I think it's hysterical. And um, it's Mark A. Altman's podcast who writes the oral histories of Star Trek and James Bond, Star Wars. I love those. And he's also directed uh, Free Enterprise, which is a hilarious movie starring Bill Shatner. But anyway, they have a guy that does Roddenberry to a T. So they'll do like Gene story notes on Star Trek 3. That's a whole show. And it's the guy just reading them in Gene's voice, and then it's pretty hysterical. That's great. I have not seen that. I'm just looking up the name of the movie you're talking about, though. Oh, the 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 Shatner directed one. Yeah, it's good. I enjoyed it, but it's a, it's a lot of like if you love the show, it's a lot of behind the scenes, and I wouldn't say mudslinging, but it's there's uh, there's, there's a fair know. amount of mudslinging and uh, just kind of just um, be kind of quality to it for sure. Bring it back to uh, Shatner's directing on this. One thing that I was actually thinking this time and and wrote in my notes because I watched it recently. Uh, was this movie the way he frames the close-ups and interiors and deals with the actors in space? It's very similar to Key Largo, to the John Huston movie, where they're also oh, wow. all trapped inside the hotel, which does a lot of putting faces in frames and giving impetus to faces and finding ways to keep three or four characters or two characters in the frame for dialogue scenes. And I feel like he must have been watching and thinking about older films like that uh you know like that like there's so many movies like key largo but <laughs> but just the, the houston that kind of specific houston uh directing from the from the specifically from the 40s where it, he's doing a lot of tight interiors and maximizing how to use the space you know how to frame bogart here and that kind of thing chaos the, on the bridge the, is the name of the movie yeah, 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 and it's I enjoyed it. The, I, the framing of the actors, the blocking and staging, the fluid, gentle way the camera moves are, I think, totally out of time. They're just beautiful and elegant. I, you know, I just can't. I mean, I'm a fan. And, you know, and, uh, yes, the the action getting, scenes are awkward. Get, getting interesting blocking without having to move the camera too. That's one thing that I think it has in common with Key Largo is you'll just get a static wide shot that has a, interesting enough framing that you can film an entire dialogue scene without cutting between matching over the shoulders and how well he does that, you know? And I think part of that feels like Shatner understands the fans hold, you know, uh, uh, McCoy and Kirk and Spock all in the same level. And so you don't want it to be close-ups cutting to the other two of them, you know? And I think he's trying to give them all the primacy that that the fans feel for those characters, that they're all as important and that it's not just close-ups of Kirk, which he easily could have done. He easily could have done. No one would have stopped them if he had been directing it and decided Kirk is the most important guy, you know? It's, it's funny because when you read the behind the scenes of the movie, and I always take all that stuff with a grain of salt, but you read the behind, and I'm so, I like this movie, so I like to read about it. And, you know, oh, you know, initially Kirk made these great decisions and 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 he, he didn't care about the characters of, of McCoy and Spock. And he and he jumps into the rivers Hades because they're really in hell and they had to talk Shatner out of it. And he's the hero and they're not. And it fed into that whole, like, Bill Shatner is an egotistical prick. That was yeah. like the line for a long time. That was the long line. 
And I just, I know I'm reading it, but I just can't even get my head around it. I'm like, but this guy has been playing off these actors, not only for 30 years, but they just did three movies together. And each of those three movies is a really heartfelt, beautiful scene or several that show that it's all about this, this, this tri- triumative. Triumvirate. This triumvirate. I, I am not a, I'm not a native speaker, man. You can't judge me. Triumvirate. Um, and how could he not know that? And then how could he then go and shoot these reshots that feature just all emotion? It's all emotion. It's all about the three of them. What they do, reshoot the whole fucking movie, rewrite the whole movie, and then teach him how to act. And I just don't <laughs> buy it. This doesn't yeah. make any sense. It seems to be like it's three actors that completely understand how they relate to each other and what fans are interested in from them. That's what my take was. I'm with you. I mean, we, you'd said about Nimoy being more cutty in his, you know, and be more like an action kind of based director, uh, basically mimicking Nick Meyer's direction, I think, you know, kind of seeing that that worked in part two. That's what I'm going to bring to part three and part I th- four. I think, he, I think he shoots like a TV director. I think he hmm. puts people in a wide, then pops down to a two shot, then hits matching close-ups, then hits close-ups, or matching over the shoulders, then close-ups. That's how Nimoy films dialogue mm-hmm. scenes in yeah. three and four. Yeah, but and, with Shatner, it feels like, uh, it feels like the archers or something. Do it. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's yeah, something yeah. very stairway to heaven about this movie. And, and that is something that I just have to admire Shatner for. I mean, I obviously love and adore Leonard Nimoy, but Shatner just has this like adventurer spirit. And that sometimes is to his disadvantage in a lot of ways. But, you know, like, yeah, like Bill was saying, there's just such an elegance and singularity to the way the film moves. And I love that about it. And I, I love that he wanted to open on Yosemite. Um. <laughs> Because, you know, this is from from Shatner's perspective that he wanted to show that in 300 years, these sacred spaces, these beautiful places on Earth are still around. Like these places are important enough for us to keep around for centuries. And that's part of what Star Trek is showing us, that it's not just space and adventure that right here on Earth, like our hearts are here. And this is an important place that we need to preserve. So that that part I really appreciate as well. Yeah, it's perfect opening for that character, especially where the whole theme is going to end up being. Why did you climb the mountain? Because it's there. You know, why are we traveling in the universe? Why are we trying? Why are we voyagers, seekers, you know, at all? Uh, a lot of the themes of this movie remind me a lot of the uh, Ray Bradbury story, The Man, which is a story about... Um, two members of a starship crew who land on a primitive planet where they've just been visited by uh, a prophet who's going from one planet to another, uh, preaching, healing the sick, um, getting rid of like the corrupt political people and everything. He's basically doing the Jesus thing from one planet to another. And one of the people on the uh, crew sees what he's done to this place. And he says, this is the place I've been looking for. This is where I'm going to stay here because the effect that this man has had on this uh, planet, that's what I, that's, this is what I've been seeking. Uh, this is where I could be happy. This is where I belong. And the other one's reaction is to say, I'm going to go find this guy. I'm going to go to the next planet. And if I miss him by a day there, I'm going to go to the next planet. And if I miss him by an hour there, I'm going to follow him until I get him. And that is kind of the cyborg mentality. Even though cyborg himself is like the messianic character, he has this idea, which is like a deranged Starfleet captain of like, I'm going to go and find a thing. You know, he's confusing religion uh, with um, a destination like a physical thing that you actually have to go seek as opposed to a, a thing that's in your heart, a thing that is right there and is who you are. 
which I think is what they kind of come to at the end of this uh, film, not just Kirk saying it, but like every single character kind of realizes that like this voyage that we're on and these people that we're with that has made us who we are, that's what God is. It's this thing that we're here. And it's not something that we have to actually go out and find and, and conquer or anything like that. But I want to ask you guys about the, uh, the Klingon characters in this movie. We brought up, you know, next generation kind of bridging the relationship with the Klingons, uh, Captain Claw and, um, Oh no, I lost it. Vixis, played by Spice Williams. I love it. Uh, what do you think guys think of that subplot? Um, it definitely seems a little undercooked. Uh, seems like a convenient way to get another gun at the end to <laughs> shoot the god being. But I also love the chemistry between the two characters. Like it it's so strange and also clearly sexual. Like and there's a, a little bit of like Lady Macbeth energy going on where she's clearly like the one in charge, ma- manipulating the young, inexperienced commander who's gonna go get Kirk. Um, so yeah, it could have been more developed, but I think it's a lot of fun to see these two buff weirdos <laughs> chasing the Enterprise. That's exactly how I feel about it. I love it. I think she he's terrific. I think Spice is terrific. I love when she's doing the you know they send the distress signal and she's the one answering i love that little reveal um i just think they're they're fun i think it's awesome i'm this movie just works for me i you hear that on every podcast this movie just works for me well why why do i have to listen to your stupid podcast then uh okay wow i saw a self-help book once that said uh feel the fear and do it anyway and i thought well what's chapter one feel the fear chapter two is do it anyway why am i gonna buy the book i don't even have to buy the book so so um it, but it, when i i guess i should was, extend was that, that book written by cybok <laughs> he lifted my pain he 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 um i love when cybok says to the guy at the top of the movie he's like you healed me he's like no it was you to your point earlier, he's all about the other person. Um, but I love those two characters. And when when it's revealed that Spock is in the chair, which I believe are all reshoots, doesn't really matter to me. I wasn't at the yeah. test screening. I'm just watching the movie on a Friday night. It works great for me. Um, and the you know he forces the guy to apologize. All that stuff that you'd think would be corny, I'm all in. I found it very charming, and uh, it just I I, I bought it. Yeah, I kind of wish these were characters, like, I want more with these characters. Like, they could have been recurring Klingons in the original series. Like, oh, it's Captain Claw again, chasing the Enterprise. <laughs> ah. I, 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 they're just a lot of fun. They, they are, and I think one of the coolest things the movie does is it's it's juggling three different narratives, you know? So while Kirk and, and the crew are on their way, uh, the Klingons are on their way to them, and you have all the business going on on Nimbus so the way it's cutting between them, every time the Klingons are on screen, they're like this the big shot of energy, you know? Yeah. And it, they, it, they keep it really exciting. You don't stay on anything too long. I just don't understand. I guess it just looked, I don't understand what people the, didn't like about the movie. The, 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 I will say the Klingon ship looks bad. It does not look well designed. It looks like Star Trek: The Ride. It looks like you're you're getting there to come see the amateur actors uh, uh, do it on a night. And I think it's, it, I actually it's think scale it's at the light. end where it's right in front of Kirk is absurd. Yeah, yeah. I, I believe that what happened was, um, and I think I read this in that book that you know they were going to save some money and not yeah. go with ILM, 
and they went with this guy, some guy doing it in his garage. It seemed like a good idea at the time. And, and you mentioned inexperienced, and I guess that's where it bites you in the ass because it's bad. I mean, it, it could take a person out of it. Me, I'm, I'm, I'm like a, like a sports fan. Like, like, yeah. like you love your team, Chris. And, you know, I always say uh, a fan says, well, they're struggling. Yeah. <laughs> a non-fan. I love the the stop motion qualities of it. Again, it's very Verhoeven to me. It's very ED209. That That's the way very, it looks and shoots and the can and the uh the arm of the gun moves. I love the stop motion animation of mechanical it, robot it, shit. It, I love it. I'm sorry. Well, like in late like in laser blast. Is it laser yeah, blast? But exactly. but but uh but I think that that is is a, it can you know is definitely a problem for for most people on their way in um to that movie that's going to hold some people back yeah i i'm with you guys and i like the klingons especially considering they're not played by christopher Plummer or christopher lloyd or you know speaking of casting you know casting and recasting De- De- david warner in this who go play the klingon in the next movie uh and i never realized george murdoch who plays god quote unquote in this movie uh he's also the admiral in best of both worlds who gets Annihilated by the Borg and at Wolf 357, oh. oh, wow. which is hilarious because he's God and he gets killed by the Borg. Well, and one more reason to appreciate the, the Klingons in this movie that Jerry Goldsmith Klingon theme is spectacular. So, <laughs> I just when I remember I begged my mom to take me opening night. I remember sitting in that theater, the Jerry Goldsmith score opens. I believe there was an overture before the movie even starts. And then the movie starts, you're hearing that score, you, you feel like your heart's going to pop out of the chest. And then there's that weird reverse shot that starts starts with the motion picture, and you see the three Klingon ships and that score. Oh, my God. I love that he brought back all those scores. This is a beautifully scored movie, too, even the original score. And But speaking of the special effects, when, you, when the Enterprise uh, 1701A is revealed, and it looks so beautiful, I think that's a, a shot from Star Trek IV. But yeah, I think it's it just is. stock. Yeah, like that's why it's... Yeah, yeah, it's because it's gorgeous. Yeah, it's a great shot, though. <laughs> it's a great shot. Let's use it twice. <laughs> they, they even Star Trek Six. They blow up the, the no. It's uh, generations. They uh, they recycle the, the blown up Klingon uh, bird of yeah. prey from Star Trek. Well, we don't we don't acknowledge that movie, so yeah. <laughs> that didn't happen. Although you... it is sad to think about Kirk saying, "I know I wasn't going to die because I wasn't alone. I had you you guys with me." To think about generations where Spock and McCoy are not there right. when he, uh, but but, there, but there he doesn't a... he doesn't die because he, there's no way Kirk dies on a close up of a chain breaking some stupid TV style close up. There's no way that stud goes out like that. He's not, not dead gonna, if I choose if, I, if gonna... I choose to have him not be cooking scrambled eggs and some next that never fucking happened, <laughs> man. I, I like a lot of next of generations, but uh, anyway, um, there's there's. Just speaking of Kirk saying, I always known I was going to die alone. There's such brilliant and subtle deconstruction of Kirk, the Kirk's hero character in this movie, like that sentiment, like, I'm so alone, I'm yeah. going to die alone. And when they're saying goodnight to each other in the beginning, when they're camping, goodnight, Jim, Kirk's response is, I don't know, I just don't know. <laughs> Which is such a dark thing to say when on vacation with your buddies. Yeah. And so for him to, at the end, say, you know, McCoy says, I thought you said men like us don't have families. And he says, I was wrong. And so it's such a beautiful arc for Kirk. And I think for a character who's had has had so much development since the original series, I think it's such a beautiful moment of realization for him. 
Um, I do wish he could have remembered that he did actually have a biological brother that died in the original series. <laughs> but <laughs> but when he says, I lost a brother once and I, you know, I got it back, it's another like, oh, tearjerker. Peter David did fix that in the comic adaptation. By ah, the way. okay. <laughs> what does uh, he so, say? What did, how, did, how did he do it? How did Peter David fix it? He says, I... I had two brothers I lost, but I was lucky to get one back. I think. It's oh, the- that's beautiful. You know, when I watched it this time, I always cringe when that's coming. And I thought, can't the other guys give him some kind of a face? And McCoy does a little look. So you, so you, in my head, the way I solved it, I make a lot of excuses when I'm a fan. <laughs> what was, oh, they think he's referring to his brother, his brother, brother. And then he's like, he's like, no, I meant, you, I, meant, I meant you, brother. I never, I always hated that guy. That guy was my dad's favorite. I hated that yeah. I, I was I glad he's. This kid's is a loser. Like, I'm glad he's dead. I might go dance on his grave when we go by the planet next. <laughs> he could get killed by a chain snapping. Why not? Um, I, this is like the third time we brought up the camping scene. I don't want to. I won't, don't want to forget Bill Tech. Tell us about the Star Trek, the officially licensed Star Trek Five marshmallow dispenser that exists. Well, I think before I talk about Mar- the this marshmallow, is, marshmallow guys, they're marshmallows. That's that's where I was going with that. So. This is a craft giveaway, and I thought, well, if you're going to make a giveaway, nothing bigger than the marshmallow market is huge. So is it is it marshmallow? This is my only question to the three of you. Why do they call it that in the movie? And are they saying it right, and I'm saying it wrong all these years? No, it's, it's they're saying fuck. it wrong in the movie. I thought it was supposed to be this is an old old-timey thing, so they're getting it wrong because it's Well, since Spock said he, does, he did research on camping, yeah. and he – misremembers what he read about as marshmallow yeah that's like, Again, that's my least favorite that's my least favorite joke in the movie because it's saying that spock got a fact wrong right yeah that's a dumb joke no, no right. but yeah. then they but then they all keep repeating it and to a point where at first it seems like they're making fun of spock getting it wrong like they know the correct but then they but then later on they just say it like that's the word marshmallow like all of them, it's very, it's very strangely played. I yeah. do not understand it. it. That's the only thing that takes me out of the movie. I'm like, what the hell? What? <laughs> um, it's weird. I do, you know, if he got might have got that fact wrong, but by the time they go camping again, he's got the the, the Vulcan harp and he's learned row 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 your boat. You know it's what I love touching. about the uh, the marshmallow dispenser too? It produces that huge marshmallow. Like that marshmallow comes out and it's like three times the size of a regular <laughs> marshmallow. It's not like two marshmallows. It's and I it's like, wow, marshmallows are fucking disgusting looking. If that went two inches longer, I would throw up. If that was just like a sausage link marshmallow, I'd be like, get this the fuck out of my movie. That that marshmallow is like part of that genetic engineering con. <laughs> You know, it's a leftover from the genetics wars. That's, I don't understand why it looks like that. When they but change then, the name to Marshmallow. And then, That's and right. Then, and then he never puts it in the fire. He just fucks around with it on his stick the whole time. That also drove me crazy. I guess that's the worst part of the movie, although I had no problem with it until we're discussing it now. <laughs> no, it's just so fun. And, it, and then to, to be fair to that scene, it's so... Uh, D, just watching D. Kelly act, I could watch that guy in anything. And I guess he didn't do a lot of other parts because maybe he just didn't want to. He was a mellow guy. But um, when he's just talking to Spock on the campfire, want a snort of whiskey or whatever, Tennessee whiskey. Yeah. I mean, just so cool of an actor i liked you um, better when you were dead oh god he's <laughs> before funny before you died <laughs> and and i love how he keeps saying shit and shatner just keeps giving him a look like please don't don't come on it's really sweet though with the interaction between those 
between those I three love guys. How Bones always like, uh, like of our time, you know, like he's wearing the jean jacket. He says things like that. You're pissing me off. Things <laughs> like you really like, piss me are off. Are saying things like this in the future? Only Bones, only McCoy is saying things like that. That is very funny. Oh my God. He's what it's just what an actor. Fantastic. They're all yeah. great. Yeah, terrific. And again, I love what I love what Nimoy does for them about them. It, it really is the first movie where they really get a lot of shit to play. And and yes, uh, Shatner and Nemo get a lot to play in in the Undiscovered Country, but this one is pretty strong with that. And I think Nemo is the one guy that it's almost easy to overlook in the movie because, it, you know, it's Kirk's reaction to things. But Nemo, man, he plays it fantastic. Um, and they're they must have all been somewhat cool with Luckenbill because he comes off so confident. He's so great. He's so good. He's, He's so such fantastic. A it's, it's outrageous that this did not create a bigger career for him. Um, guys, we're headed towards the end of the episode. We're about an hour and a half in. I was going to ask you this question. Would you recommend this movie to non-Star Trek fans without any reservations. We're all defending it. I think we all know we like it, but would you go far as to say somebody that you don't know whether they like Star Trek or not, they don't know if they'll enjoy it, would you recommend this movie without any reservations or would you give them a caveat? Um, I think I would have a, I would recommend it with caveats. I think if there was, if you had somebody who likes interesting failures or interesting movies over perfect movies. Like if you're a fan of Howard the Duck, I'd be like, yeah, hell yeah, see, <laughs> see Final Frontier. Um, but but if if your if your favorite movie is The Force Awakens, and I would say, um, I'm sorry, that that that's mean. Um, that doesn't yeah. exist. I, Nobody's I favorite movie is apology. The Force Awakens. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I strongly recommend it, but with caveats, I would not also recommend it as somebody's first star trek experience as much as i love the movie do you think it works without familiarity with star trek and these characters do you think it would work for you without the background behind it or do you think it's like best as a part five you know i i, really I do think you, you you need the backstory of these characters to, to get the full impact of this movie at least a little bit yeah, that's why I can't recommend it to someone that doesn't like Star Trek. There's a couple things that would prevent me from doing it. Number one, I try not to associate with people that don't like Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, but number two, um, I do have some non-Trekker friends, some. Um, but yeah, I think it's all about this 30 years. I don't know how many years it had been at that point. So see, start, it starts in 67, then it's 89. So yeah, Um you need all those years because this is a movie about relationships. It's about growing older. It's about there's something really cool that happens in Star Trek three, just to digress. But you know how the picture starts really small and black and white until it fills up the screen. Yeah. And I thought I thought, well, that's interesting. Maybe they're saying like, hey, you know, you may have seen this as a TV show. But this isn't a TV show. Yeah. This is a movie. <laughs> and all of a sudden, before you know, it, it's filling up the screen. And then the movie doesn't act like it's a TV show. It doesn't act like it's got to come back next week. They're like, we'll kill this guy. We'll blow up the ship. We'll leave him on a plant. Yeah. Doesn't matter. Don't sweat it. Um, that, that kind of like, you've got to know this shit. you got to know that it started on TV. you got to know these guys are friends. And, and you have to have kind of watched their friendship. Now, you guys watched this movie cold when you were younger. So you I, had your I had own seen, experience I had seen it. all of them. I had seen. Oh, okay. I had seen the original series too. Yeah, like I said, I came from a Star Trek family, so I, I think I had seen three. Was the first one I saw in 
theaters, I think, uh, when I was real little. But I'd definitely seen four before this in the theaters and had seen the other two. Oh, that's cool. I could only recommend to a non-Star Trek fan, I think, Star Trek 2. And even that is a bit of a stretch, I think. You have to know something about these characters for it to mean something, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I always warn people, whatever you do, just don't start with the motion picture. Just don't start with part one. Because that's really, that's the most fan service one to me. That's the most like, we're all here, and the Enterprise is here. And we're going to go very slow. <laughs> and I love every second of it. Yeah, I, I I love that movie too, and I and I feel, but you know, but with, with a but, you know, I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel they kind of remade it in that trilogy. I mean, if you yeah. look at the story beats, it's literally like, well, Spock gets emotion, Kirk gets the ship back, you know, they get pretty much, um, and I love it. But it's it's I love it in a different way. I love it as if you took my favorite characters and put them in some other kind of movie. Because, you know, this movie, Star Trek V, when, when the, what was that wonderful actor you guys mentioned that plays Johns at the beginning of the movie? The guy that's guarding his rocks. When he smiles and tilts his head, and you have the music, there's a little music cue there, like a little sting, like, dunk, dunk. and you're like, oh, this is Star Trek, where every time somebody arches an eyebrow, there's a little... <laughs> music due to it you know what i'm saying and that felt really familiar really like home and i loved that um and the other movie is like an old hollywood movie like where you have to really it's just another thing it's not it's not telling you what to feel with music cues and things like that it's a whole other thing and um anyway i digress it's it's interesting i wasn't even thinking about this one i asked the question i actually watched it with uh with a friend of mine who she's chinese from china she's only been here since 2018 who had never even heard of star trek like she had never even heard the phrase star trek before we sat down to watch this and i watched it with her and she loved the opening scene right and she's great she's also like she's a very accomplished famous novelist and so she has a lot of opinions about the opening scene and halfway through she turned to me and she was like i hate this she was like, I just, I hate sitting through this. I hate this movie. Do we have to finish watching it? And I was like, no, no, we'll stop and I'll finish watching it on my own later. But it was interesting. That opening scene is really, it's a really powerful, like standalone scene. And then it gets into all of the Star Trek stuff that I feel like you have to know what these guys are and what this is. And that it's weird to see them in Yosemite, that that's like an interesting landscape to set them in you know, and surprising things to do with them and sort of playing off the history of all of them. I think you have to know some of that. And if you don't, it, it just, it, I think it could easily be an excruciating experience. And Did I you think happen I, to notice when she, when she turned on the movie officially, was it a specific scene? That when she was like, when they got, when they got put in the, the brig and it was the, we got to break out of the brig scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, then nobody can break out of this out of the special new brig did he have pointy ears the man who couldn't get out yeah and uh ability to antagonize and that was that was she was just like we got to turn this off we got to (laughs) stop i was wondering if it was the fan dance that that makes sense no i don't know it wasn't it wasn't anything like that it was it was really when it was just the three of them for a long amount of time when it gets like it gets like about the characters there's like a, a 30 to 40 minute chunk there in the middle that's really 
um, not plot driven at all. That's really not heavily plot plot driven. No, not at all. And, and that's a balance too, right? Balancing a sort of plot driven movie where at least there's a MacGuffin. We're gonna go meet yeah. this thing, and then this that character, get movie, which is really about late. That doesn't get introduced until like a half an hour left in the movie, and then they're there, and then he's not God. I think it rushes. <laughs> I think it rushes the ending. I think it. I think it needs. I think they should introduce what he's looking for like about 15, 20 minutes earlier, you know, why he needs the ship. And then when they, so there's build up to getting there and convincing people and having a bunch of people be gradually convinced that, yeah, they're really going to meet God when they get there. But instead it's like, we're going to get God if we can get through this barrier that people can't penetrate. There's no way to get over through it. And here he is, you know, that's like how the story goes very quickly. This is all really interesting just in terms of the cyborg stuff being so captivating to non-Star Trek people. I told the story before in the dad episode, but I'll tell you guys because I don't think you've heard it. I The first time I tried to get my kids to watch Star Trek, my oldest daughter, Odile, uh, it was because Next Gen was on. Great episode, cause and effect. And I'm like, oh my God, Odile, you got to watch this. This is a great episode. Not thinking, oh no, this is a loop episode where it repeats itself over and over and over again. So by the third or fourth iteration, she was like, oh, what this, this is so boring. They're just doing the same thing over and over again. And I poisoned her for Star Trek for the rest of her life. <laughs> but when I was telling them about this movie and I said, uh, and they wouldn't even want to listen. They were like, nope, nope, Star Trek, not listening. I said, no, 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 listen, it opens with a guy who heals people by touching their face and saying, share your pain with me. And he takes their most painful moment away from them. And they were like hooked. Yeah. They're like, oh, this sounds like a cool movie, you know, without the Star Trek part of it, just the Cyborg aspect. And even when I was a kid, when I hated the movie, I was really drawn in by Cyborg and by, uh, by Luck and Bill. And I think that that's def without a doubt, for, for all the flaws of this film, that's something that is just dynamite. Yeah. I remembered every part of that from being a kid. You know, it's been, what has it been? 30 years since I watched this movie? 32 years almost? And I remembered every single scene with Cybok. I remembered everything that happened in this movie, it felt like. But as I'm talking, I'm realizing it was everything with Cybok that I remembered. That, that that was really the stuff that impacted me. And I think that's what makes it interesting as a movie to sort of recommend, where I think it's both the most general interest concept. I think that the Cybox stuff is very engaging, but it's also the most niche of it as well, you know? And then it also has some crowd-pleasing shit that absolutely doesn't work with the broad comedy, you know? So I think it's a yep. weird melange of stuff. But I, I hate how uh, how bad-mouthed it is, how, how demeaned as a movie it is. I mean, I think that's such an astonishing and also brave thing for a franchise... 20 some years old that the new character is the thing that fascinates people like i think that's yeah. such a great accomplishment and a credit to the movie yeah Ab absolutely. absolutely and a credit to you know the actor and it's just so it's a very i mean most of it is beautifully put together it's also such a beautifully lit movie and everything that you, what i love is again that stagecraft of it where everything has weird colors the planet there's always something going on with colors on the walls or colors on the characters everything's hyper dramatic but stage lit it's really cool and they really let the actors go even you know david warner's relaxed luck and bill's relaxed i wanted to tell john uh, i wanted to tell jb is it jb jb john benjamin cribs 
I'm going to tell JB that, and we've shared this, and maybe even on a podcast, that I felt I had ruined Star Trek for my son because I showed him Wrath of Khan when he was far too young. And then I showed him Wrath of Khan again when he was a little older because I really wanted to share this with him. And both times he was like, what is this? You forget that it's kind of slow at the beginning. You know, he was young. It's yeah. really it's, easy to poison people against Star Trek. It's very know, and, easy. And I think you broke, just have to go with it, four. I think you just well, have to go with four. No, you can't. You need, the, you need the context. You need the context. And then, so anyway, but then I had an opportunity about a year and a half ago, two years ago. And I maybe it was last year. And I'm like, watch this movie with me. And he was like, this is unbelievable. This is all about aging. He's watching his dad get older. This is all about aging. You know, when Kirk looks around before he puts his glasses on, friendship. Now he got the whole thing. So there's always a second chance is all I'm saying. Um, Just like Captain Kirk. Like Captain Kirk says, there's always a certain second chance. One more thing in our praising of Shatner. Uh, He discovered Luck and Bill, apparently. He was just Mm -hmm. like flipping through the TV and Solomon something and was like, this is the guy to replace Connery. And that's such a crazy thing to have done and to have it work. I feel like, you know, Robert Altman says that 90% of directing is casting, right? That, you know, you just, you get the right people in the roles and you let them go to say, we can't get Connery. I'm going to pluck this fucking nobody off of TV and have him be as good as he is, is an incredibly like just bravura directing gesture like that's the kind of home run that's like you know babe ruth calling your shot hitting the home it's just like you can't fucking do that that's just like that that's like the dream move that's just like fucking the slam dunk to in the to win the series you know it just doesn't happen like that you know it's Nick That's Foles in the Super Bowl. It's a Nick Foles in the Super Bowl. <laughs> Nick Foles was the cyborg of the Eagles for sure. <laughs> uh, it, it, make, it does make me wish that Shatner had an opportunity to direct more films. Like I know he directed plays and then things before and after this, but uh, if, if if you have such an eye for casting and such an eye for camera movement, like he really, it would have been great if he had an. I'm going my my new movie is in a film festival next month, and he's the guest of honor there. So I'm hoping oh, wow. to meet him. Hoping to meet him at the opening night party. Amazing. Get a photo with Shatner. Space traveler uh, Bill Shatner. You know, um, I love Bill, but I, 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 I can't. I don't even. I can't meet him. I can't really meet him. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I wouldn't. I, I, I would have loved to have met Nimoy, but I, I would not have wanted to meet Shatner <laughs> as much as I love him. <laughs> I'm gonna have a great time. It's going to be amazing. We're going to sing Rocket Man. It's all going to happen just the way we want it. So to end the episode, guys, uh, I will give you, let you guys do closing thoughts, and then I will give you guys my Star Trek joke to end to end the episode. Did you guys have anything you want to say before we head into the outro? I'm excited to hear the Star Trek joke. Yeah. I'm very excited to hear the Star Trek joke. Okay. No, I'm, I'm, I'm covered. John, Bill, thank you for doing this episode. Cribs, thank you for for putting it together and all of this. I had a really great time talking with you guys. Loved having you on here to talk about this film that I think is a really interesting film that I think this might be the only interesting discussion of it ever committed to the internet. I think every other discussion is just like, let's goof on the jackets or whatever the hell those people do. I don't even I don't even know. They're bad fucking DeForest Kelly impressions and whatever on the episode. I can just say one thing as as my final thought. Um, you know, as you reflect on this movie, you know, it's it's 
my development as a human is pretty inseparable from Star Trek because it's been <laughs> with me, like my whole life. And so I just really appreciate how this, you know, German of idea, you know, um, birthed such deep thinking, like spiritual, spiritually themed films, uh, you know, such deep philosophical thinking. And I just really appreciate being able to like grow up with these movies that have like sparked so much like reflection within myself and, and including this film. So I'm just so thankful to you gentlemen for talking with me about this really interesting, great movie. Awesome. I just want to say that I, I enjoy some of the things that John enjoys about the Star Trek movies. They've sent, you know, whether it's, uh, um, you know, the themes of environmentalism or, or, or pacifism or science or, you know, um, just things about friendship. Like it's, it's a formative stuff. It's important stuff to me. And I loved this movie when it came out and I've always defended it. I never had anybody to talk to about how much I like this movie until I got to talk to the four of you guys. I've talked to many people where we've had contentious arguments and so forth and other fans that didn't care for it, but not uh, three other lovers of this movie. So this is like a super one of my favorite nights <laughs> because I, I really love the movie. And I, I was mentioning earlier, there's a beautiful poster, that the teaser poster, which is a, uh, a movie seat with seatbelts in it. You know, oh, it's, it's yeah. I know these seatbelts are being installed because this summer and uh, and I, you know, I know they were expecting something and, and Bill Shatner was trying to deliver something. And sometimes but what's there, sometimes it doesn't work out. But what's there is super exciting and beautiful. And I, I want to thank you guys for letting me talk about this movie that means so much to me. And, and uh, it's great to talk about it with three friends. And I would add, if anybody's interested there's a really cool book. It's out of print, but you can find it. It's called Letters to Star Trek, and it's by Susan Sackett. I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. She was Roddenberry's assistant, and I think they had a relationship, but it was published in the 70s, and it's just a series of letters to the actors, to the producers, whatever, from people. And you see how much this affected people. It's super touching as a book, you know, and uh, I think it'll give insight into what these four, the four of us are digging that's awesome. I don't think I got a chance to tell you, Bill. I found that book based on your recommendation. I found a copy of it, but it was at a used bookstore, and it was just one of those decrepit copies that smelled so bad that I couldn't <laughs> couldn't buy and take it home. But I was oh, this, I wanted to read this for so oh, long. Oh, when you know it's somebody's bathroom reading, and you see it at the bookstore, and you're like, I can't fucking do this. I, I I know of John's love for books. I mean, so it is it is legend. So if you couldn't get this book. I had this book was in bad shape. <laughs> yeah, no, for me, it had to be literally falling apart in my hands. Right on. So guys, what did Spock find in the toilet? The captain's, captain's log. log. There you go, everybody. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Just picture him raising an eyebrow. Highly illogical. It's actually <laughs> perfectly logical. Good night, everyone. <laughs> 